2 Corinthians 7 is where we're going to be this morning. We are in our third and final message on uh, sin and repentance and what it looks like for us to repent. Um, and I think so far, at least for me personally, I, I've, I've learned a couple of things as we've worked our way through some of these different passages of Scripture. One is that I often find myself either too busy or too distracted or just simply not aware of my sin. And then that when I am, I realize that the tendency of the human heart, mine at least, is to downplay, excuse, rationalize, or justify my sin or try to cover it up rather than face it and repent of it. So I feel like I've learned that, or at least we're, at least I'm beginning to get an idea of what that means in my life. And then we saw last week that what God is looking for in us is certainly not perfection, but he's looking for us to have a broken and contrite heart. That it's good for believers to have a heart that is contrite and broken over its sin. And then we also saw that Jesus saw that Jesus' grace and love abounds enough to forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, restore us, and renew us so that we can have hope and joy. So we have that dichotomy in our lives as Christians. We're grieving, but we're rejoicing. We're downcast, but we're filled with joy. We're aware of our sin and our hearts are broken, but we're aware of grace, and so we rejoice in our Savior. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to focus really this morning just on repentance and what does repentance look like. So maybe you've become aware of a sin in your life, and now it's time to figure out what do I do what, what does it look like to repent? So what I want to do this morning is simply just talk about repentance. And the, the passage of Scripture that most clearly, I think, addresses repentance is 2 Corinthians 7. And so Ruth is going to come, and she's going to read for us 2 Corinthians 7. And I want you, as she reads, to be paying attention to what is repentance. What does repentance look like? And then we're going to dive right in this morning to a study with four, I'm going to give you four observations or four things I think are true about repentance. So, as soon as we're done doing disco, <laughs> everyone take out your phones. <laughs> it's not a big deal at all. In fact, this is a good chance for me to remind parents, if your kids are in Christ kids, you need to have your phone at least on vibrate. So if they need you to change a poopy diaper, you can do that. All right, so Ruth is going to read from 2 Corinthians She's going to read all of chapter 7 to us. Okay. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Let's just take a second and pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word, and we ask, Spirit, we we pause right now, and we ask that you please would work this passage of scripture deep into our hearts. God, we can't do that. God, I could flap my mouth for 35 or 40 minutes, and we could sit here and listen and walk out of here unaffected. It's possible. Um, But that's not what we want. I I don't believe any of us came this morning because we wanted to leave the same way we showed up. Um, So I I pray that you would um, respond to this prayer, God, as we come humbly before you um, and ask you to please bless us with a fresh filling of your spirit so that the words from these verses that you had Paul penned for us this morning would have its attended effect on our hearts. Um, So do that, God. Give us the gift of repentance. We acknowledge it's a gift from you. And so, Lord Jesus, whether that is the gift of repentance for the first time or whether it's for the hundredth time, we still need you to give us the gift of repentance. And so pour that down into us by the power of your Spirit, I pray, that today we would leave here with a deeper zeal to want to turn from every and all sin to live for you, our good and gracious and wonderful God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, quick little background. Go to verse 8. Look what Paul says. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I, did, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. So, Paul sends a letter. You guys ever send an email and send it and then go, oh, wish I hadn't sent it, but I'm glad I did, but I probably didn't want to, and I did. You ever do that? I've done that. Paul is basically saying that. He sent the letter, first letter, to the church in Corinth. And even as he sent it, I guess he sent it by foot. Somebody's running with it to take it to the church in Corinth. He's thinking, oh boy, that was a hard letter. And if he's referring to 1 Corinthians, where you think he is, I mean, he, he did a lot of damage on them. You got to admit. I mean, he calls them out about their divisions, their lawsuits, their sexual morality, their marriage issues, their idolatry, their misuse of the Lord's Supper, how they didn't understand spiritual gifts and they were ignorant. I mean, he lays them out. And so he's concerned, how would they respond to it? So this letter, he's acknowledging how they responded. And so that's where we jump in now to their response was one of repentance. So I want to make four observations about repentance for us this morning that I hope helps us to embrace what it is and then to live it out in our lives. So number one, first observation I make from this passage, and just word of warning, tons of content this morning. 
There's a lot to get through as far as just doctrine and understanding. Um, so I, I pray I don't overwhelm you, and I pray instead the Spirit will help you grab a hold of the bits and pieces He wants you to, and then you can review and reflect later. But there's just a lot of, a lot of very um, meaty things in this that we've got to kind of wrap our brains around. So if you're ready to go, we're ready to go. Let's go. All right, so point number one is this, that the church is being called to repent. So Paul sends this letter, and the first thing we've got to observe is this is a letter to the church, and the church is being called to repent. Now, things in Corinth, the city of Corinth, was, it was jacked up, okay? So it had been easy for Paul to send a letter to the political leaders in Corinth, or the government in, in Corinth, or the tax collectors in Corinth, or there was a temple there for Aphrodite where thousands of prostitutes would be, and men would flood there. So he could have called all of them to repent, but he doesn't. Repentance that God is concerned about is in the church. And just as a way of reminder, this is the way it's always been in redemptive history. You go back to the Old Testament. Who were the prophets primarily sent to? Israel and Judah, to God's people. When Jesus comes, who does he rebuke and call to repentance? The Jews and the Jewish leaders. I don't know if any of you read the first couple chapters of Revelation lately, but there's seven churches mentioned, and out of the seven, five of them, Jesus himself calls them to repent. And he gives them specific things to repent over. So I draw this to our attention because I think, from my, my limited little worldview of where, what I hear going on in the church in America today, the church seems to be very concerned, and Christians seem to be very concerned about Washington repenting. And I just want to say that if we would give as much attention to our repenting as we are to Washington's repenting, there would be revival in the church. Everything in God's word points to his desire and his concern for his church to live a repentant life. And his concern is for you. For you to live a life of repentance. So that's number one. This is for us. So be thinking about you. Number two, the church here is being called to thorough repentance. It's probably a better word. I couldn't think of one, so I used the word thorough. Thorough repentance. Look at verse 1, please, with me. These are not, this is not my opinion. My opinion is irrelevant. Verse 1 tells us God's opinion of why our repentance should be thorough. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from... Every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to, what's it say? Completion. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. So I got two things here that tell me that this needs to be very thorough. He uses every defilement. We're to cleanse ourselves from every Defilement or every stain. In the Greek, the word every is also the word for all. All defilement. So not just repenting from some defilement or most defilement, but he says from every and all things that defile us or stain us. Big things, small things, outward things, inward things, omission, commission, all of them. We are to cleanse ourselves from them. So it's thorough in that it's every defilement. And then he says that he wants us to bring our repentance to completion or the completion of 
holiness. He wants our holiness to be complete. Now, I don't know what your definition of holiness is. So I tried to like do a lot of research. Like, what is holiness really in God's word? And so here, here's what I think is a definition of holiness. Holiness is this. It is the infinite worth of God. So it's the infinite worth of God or the infinite worth of the Trinity or the infinite worth of the transcendent Trinity. So it's the infinite worth of God along with all of his thoughts, feelings, and actions. So holiness is about God. It is about his infinite worth. And then because of his infinite worth, everything that he thinks, feels, and does make up holiness. So for you to be holy, it means that all of your thoughts and your feelings and your actions need to be in harmony with his worth, his thoughts, his feelings, and his actions. That's holiness. So it's not this little list of do's and don'ts. Holiness is your life. Is your life coming into harmony with the worth of God? It is for you to see God's thoughts, his feelings, his actions, and say, I want my life to line up with his. That's holiness. That is what he calls us to do. And he says we are to do it until completion. We're to pursue that until completion. Now, let me ask you. When will your holiness be complete? When we're in heaven. <laughs> Either he comes and gets me, or I, go up to get, or I go up to meet him. Either I'm dying, or he's coming, something's happening. Until then, I still got work to do, because it's not going to be complete yet. That tells me that repentance is ongoing. It is every day. It is all of the time. I get a little nervous when I hear people say about a sin that they've had, or they've dealt with, and they go, and I repented. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, but probably you are repenting. Because <laughs> that's how my life rolls. I think I've repented, and then the stinker comes back up again. And I realize, no, I'm just going to have to keep repenting. And I think that's the call of the Christian life. We are called to be people who are constantly in the act of repenting. And then he, he says this third thing in here, that it's we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and mind or flesh and mind. So it's not just things within my heart, although it is those things, anger and selfishness and complaining and the list goes on. But he also uses the word body here. So I think he might be referring to things like gluttony and drunkenness and sexual sins and things that maybe are more tangible for us physically, but we know flow from our hearts. And he says, whatever any of these things are, no matter what they are, we are to bring holiness to completion. We're to cleanse ourselves from everything in our body and our spirit that defiles us. All of them. So it is thorough. No stone is left unturned. That's number two, observation. Number three thing I see about repentance is this. The church is being called to repent with promised power. If you don't have promise power, you won't have the power to repent. Now, why do I say this? Look at verse 1. Since we have these, what's it say? Promises. Since you have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. So you understand what's happening. Come on, you guys are smart, right? You know English. You know how, how the English language works and how sentences are built. It's only because of the promises that we cleanse ourselves and pursue holiness. 
What promises is Paul talking about? How do you find out? You make it up. You just think about all the verses you know that are promises and pull them out of the sky. What do you do? Excellent. You go back. So we go back. Now you can go back to the whole beginning of of Corinthians. We're not going to. We're just going to go back. You only have to go back to verse 16 of chapter 6. So look at verse 16 of chapter 6. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now he's going to launch now into promises for, I want to see if you can count them. See if you can count how many promises there are here. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So we could go back and find more promises in 1 Corinthians, but there's enough here to fuel my repentance, to give me power to repent. So let's look at them. I counted seven. There could be more. Maybe you saw more. I see seven. So here they are. I'm going to rattle them off really quick for you. I think there's seven. Promise number one is this. We are the temple of the living God. That means God himself lives in you. The eternal, infinite, glorious God lives in you. That is incredible to think the Spirit of God right now. Sometimes I have to stop and just close my eyes and I think to myself, God is dwelling in me. That's insane. An infinite God through the power of the Spirit lives in you. In you, you are a temple of the living God. Promise number two is that God dwells among us. He makes his dwelling among us. That means God right now is 100% in this room. Tomorrow, he will be with you. 100% of God will be with you 100% of the time. I have trouble being in one place 50% of my being (laughs) as my mind drifts to other things. God promises he will be with you. He will dwell among us. And then promise number three, he says he is going to walk among us. So he's not just among us, but he's going to walk, and he says walk with us, walk among us. Now, I think this is different than him just dwelling among us in that the the imagery of God walking in the Bible is God being with us through life's trials. So he's saying, look, I'm going to promise to be with you through every trial, every temptation, every challenge, every sad moment, every happy moment, sympathizing, comforting, encouraging you. I'm going to walk with you. Promise number four, God says, I will be their God. I will be their God. That means he belongs to us. God says, I am yours. I'm yours. I'm yours. And then promise number five, it says, and they shall be my people. So not only does he belong to us, but we belong to him. Not only does he say, I am yours, but he says, you are mine. You see the relational aspect to this? God's like, I'm going to surround you, be in you, walk with you. You're mine. I'm yours. And then if that's not enough, promise number six, I'm going to be your father. Verse 18. The eternal, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God who owns it all is going to be your dad. You can call him your dad. 
And then promise number seven, which links with it, he says that you will be my sons and you will be my daughters. So he's our dad, and we are now adopted into his family, and he's eager to treat you like his very son. So those are a stack of promises. And the promises here for God is basically 24-hour a day, seven day a week, personal, fatherly, caring presence in you, with you, around you, walking with you. This is really good news. This means you've got God 24-7 with you everywhere and everything you do. And because of this, he says, in light of this, this is what motivates and fuels us to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So we, we think about these promises and say, what a God that he wants to be with us this way. I want to repent. I want to live for him. I want to have my life in line with him. If this is who he is and what he does for us and how he's going to treat me, then don't you want to live for him? In other words, having God motivates us to please God. Having God propels us to live for God. Having God makes us zealous for repentance. Listen carefully. The reason we pursue repentance is because God is worth it. He is worthy. He is. We, we sang this morning, right? It's worth it because he is worth it. It's worth repenting because he is worthy of our repentance. Now, let me contrast this for just a moment with some things that you and I have experienced in church and see if this helps shine some light on what I mean when I say the reason we pursue repentance is because God is worth it. So you're in a Sunday gathering, and the message is on how Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so the service starts to come to an end, and the pastor says, perhaps you feel alone today. Perhaps you've been betrayed by many people, and you don't have a lot of friends so repent and turn to Jesus because he's a friend closer than a brother. Now, is that true? Yes, that's true. But you notice that the reason for the repentance is selfish, is it not? It's because I want a friend, right? It's for me. It's for my friendship. I want a friend, so I'm going to repent and get Jesus. The next Sunday you come back and the message is on our burdens and how sin is a burden. And how you came this morning, maybe you're carrying burdens of sin. So repent and turn to Jesus because he'll take away your burden. He'll carry your burden for you. Now, is it true that Jesus takes away our sin and carries our burden for us? Yes, it is. And is it good? Yes, it is. But you see the motivation again. What's the motivation? I want my burden lifted. It's about me. So the next week you come back and the message is on hell. And it's... Heaven is real and hell is real and I want you to escape the fires of hell. So repent and turn to Jesus and you can go to heaven and not hell. Now, is it true that we repent from our sin, turn to Jesus so that we can go to heaven and not to hell? Yes, it is. But you see again, what's the motive? Me. It's, it's for me. Now, are these all legitimate reasons to turn to Jesus? Absolutely. The point I'm trying to make is this. Ultimately, the reason we turn to Jesus 
is because he is worth turning to. That's it. Ultimately, I repent of my sin yesterday, today, and hopefully tomorrow because I see his glory, his preciousness, his beauty, and his worth. And I say, you are worth my repentance. Even if I didn't get these other things, which I'm glad I do, I would turn to you because you're worth it. You're worth turning to because of your glory and your majesty. So parents, just a little, a little word to you as you guide your kids down the path of repentance, that it is good to mention these things, that he's a friend and he carries our burden, and yes, we don't want to go to hell. But I wonder if the reason there are so many high school slash college students and beyond drifting into the world and away from the church is because they repented because they just wanted a friend. Or they didn't want to go to hell. But no one ever showed them how amazing Jesus was. No one told them, turn to Christ because he is the best. He is amazing. He is all satisfying. He is glorious from start to finish. And he's the only one who can satisfy all the cravings of your heart. So that was number three. Number four, the church, observation number four about repentance, the church should be obsessed with repentance. Is that how I worded it? Yes. Again, not sure if obsessed is the best word, but it's the only word I came up with. So if you can put your own word in there, you'll get the gist of it in a moment. The church, believers, we should be obsessed in the best sense of the word, with repentance. Let's talk about what repentance is for a moment, okay? Repentance is you and I were all walking towards sin, towards hell. That's what we were doing. Repentance is we, we, we see our sin, and then we turn from our sin, and we turn to Christ. It's not just turning from sin, but it's turning to him. And you can't turn to him unless you've turned from your sin. You have to turn from your sin in order to turn to Jesus. So that's what we do in repentance. We turn from sin and we turn to Jesus. That is the point of repentance. Now, let me try to see if I can illustrate this for a moment in a way that's helpful. So I have two plates. I have chocolate little baby donuts. And I have salad. So Elizabeth and I are on this little diet. I'm really not a huge donut fan, but it was a good thing to have because I know a lot of us love donuts. And these little chocolate guys, you just pop them in. So I see the little donuts. And they look yummy. And I want them. But I know if I eat it, it's going to add cholesterol. It's going to add fat. It's too many carbs. And I'm going to feel sick afterwards. So what do I do? I turn. And I say, no. I'm going to turn to this salad. Now, do I want my salad? I don't really want my salad. <laughs> I really don't. You can put all of the junky toppings on it, and I just don't want my salad. I'll give you a list of other things I'd rather have than my salad. So we turn from our donut to our salad. And I think we can think to ourselves, that's kind of what it's like to be a, a Christian. We, we, we want, look how good this looks. Oh, they're yummy. But I've got to turn to Jesus the salad. Instead of seeing this is really what it's like. Is there anything to eat in here? Is there any, what can I have? Oh, look, somebody dropped a Dunkin' Donuts container. Maybe there's something here I can lick the napkin in the trash. That's, that's, now I'm turning to Jesus who has a buffet longer than this room. 
filled with every food I could ever want that's cholesterol-free, fat-free, whatever else you need it to be free of, with every flavor I've ever wanted. That's what it means to turn. You're turning from trash to glory. We've got to have that in our head. It's not like, oh, I'll give that up, but I really want. No, you've got to see it as trash, whether it's a sin of omission or commission. Trash. Jesus, infinite glory. That's what motivates us to repent and to turn from sin to him. We've got to see him. We have to see him. We've got to embrace his promises and who he is, and he's going to be with us in all of his glory. So here is what repentance is. Here's why I'm, I'm saying we need to be obsessed with this turning. Look at verse 9 with me. I'm going to see if I can walk us through why I think this needs to be some sort of an obsession for us. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved. So grieving in itself is not the goal, Paul says. But because you were grieved into repenting. Okay, so there's a grief that happens that takes me to repenting. For you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through it, okay, through us. So, so let's go back to the trash can for a second here. So there is this godly grief where I suffer no loss. So there's a godly grief where I go, I've been eating trash. Like a raccoon. I've been eating trash. And it's a godly grief that goes, I want, I want God. I want him. I don't want trash. And I turn to him. That's what Paul's getting at. It's a, it's a turning to him because you realize what you've been doing with your life, what we do with our lives. Okay, so let's keep reading here. So he says this, verse 10, or let's finish verse 9. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered, so there's no loss. There's no loss. Listen, when you repent of sin, there's no loss. You might feel a loss, but there's no loss. Verse 10. For godly grief, so that's the second time we've seen that phrase, godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to saving, to rescuing, to salvation without regret. There's a godly grief that leads to repentance that you will never regret. Whereas, uh uh-oh, worldly grief produces death. So you got to stop right here and realize that means there are two types of grieving over sin. And they stand in stark contrast to one another. There is a repentance that is worldly, and there is a repentance that is godly. Do you see that? I think that is really huge. I think it's important to notice repentance and grief go hand in hand, don't they? Repentance and grief go hand in hand. It's a place for grief in our repentance. But we need to notice here that there is a stark contrast between these two types of grief. One produces salvation. The other produces death. So one is going to make me live. The other one's going to make me die. Now, do you think it's important that we as Christians know the difference between the two? (laughs) If one's going to make you live and the other one's going to make you die, don't you want to know the difference? 
I want to know the difference. I think God thinks it's important that we know the difference. I think it's so important to God that he reveals the difference to Paul and has Paul write it down for us because he knows there's a possibility that we could be repenting due to worldly grief and just end up dead. And that's not what he wants. He wants you to know how to have a grief that brings salvation and life rather than a grief that just beats you up and leaves you dead. So what is the difference? Well, as God typically does, he leads us down a road and then he gives us the answer. So verse 11, he's going to tell you what godly grief is. He's going to tell us. He's going to give us seven marks of godly grief and godly grief that leads to repentance. So here they are. Let's read verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Now, if you were like me, the first time I read that, I'm like, what on earth is he talking about? I'm like, those words don't mean anything to me. That is confusing. Uh, whatever. So you need to know this weeks of me just like, God, what, what are you saying here? And trying to figure out what do these words mean and how do they function in our lives? So I'm going to give you very briefly, I'm going to run you through what these are. These are marks of godly grief. And then we're going to tie them up in a bow at the end. But perfect little package. Okay, so here we go. Seven marks that I see here of what godly grief is. The first is earnestness. He says, what earnestness or diligence? There is a careful attitude of I am going to do whatever it takes to turn from this sin. I am earnest to do it. Whereas I guess worldly grief then would give up or make excuses or pursue repentance passively. Whereas godly grief produces a repentance that is earnest or our earnest godly grief or earnest repentance will produce salvation. So it's earnest, first of all. Number two, it is eager to clear yourself. Or maybe in your version it says vindication. So, in other words, deal with your sin so thoroughly that no one can blame you of it again. Put it to death. Number three, he uses the word, what indignation? What indignation? Basically, the idea there is, is irritated or resentment. In other words, are you outraged at your sin? You see it and it makes you angry. You are angry and outraged over your sin. And you say, no, I want to live for Jesus now 100%, and I don't ever want to do that again. I'm outraged at it. Number four, the fourth word here, he says, what fear. And I think from other places in Scripture that the fear that he's talking about is a fear of drifting from God, a fear of being spiritually blind, a fear of disappointing God, a fear of just drifting away, a fear of what will happen if I don't repent. Do you ever think that way? you ever sin and go, oh my God, if I don't repent, what could happen to me? Where could this lead? That's what he's talking about. There's a fear there. Then he says, what longing, what longing or what earnest desire or what urgent desire you had to be set apart for God. There's this longing or earnestness. Then he uses the word that we're maybe a little more familiar with. He says, what zeal, what zeal, what fervent mind, what deep 
passion you had for Jesus that you were willing to turn from all those sins I mentioned in, in my first letter to you so that you could live for Christ. Come on, you guys know people. You, you are at times that person who is zealous for God, right? Zeal for him. That's what he's talking about. What zeal you had for him and to live for him. And then he ends with what punishment, which I think he's talking about restitution. Are you, are, you, are you so hating your sin and so zealous for God that you say, I want to make restitution. Whoever I've wronged along the way in my sin, I'm going to make it right. Zacchaeus, right? God didn't, Jesus didn't tell him, go give back. Zacchaeus encountered Jesus and said, I'm going to go give back tenfold. I'm going to go knock on everybody's door and go, here, I give it back and more. Because he, he felt punishment, if you will, or restitution that was necessary. So Paul piles up these phrases. And so after just meditating on this for weeks, honestly, I think Paul is piling up these phrases to make a point. I think he's piling them up to make, really, you could say one single point, which would be the church should be obsessed with repentance. <laughs> I think it's what he's saying. Godly grief, listen, leads to repentance because godly grief is 100% obsessed with being completely cleansed from every defilement. Godly grief stops at nothing in order for you to repent from sin and to Christ. Godly grief is fueled, listen, by such an infatuation with God's infinite worth that we want to live completely for him and stop at nothing to do with it, to do it. Nothing. So listen, godly grief that leads to repentance, it has no regrets and it saves you from the lies and the perils and the bondage of sin. And it turns you to Jesus saying, I want you more than anything. I want to live for you. I want my thoughts, my feelings, and my actions to come in line with you and who you are and what you are worth. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Now, I have to tell you that when I studied this this week and I'm practice preaching it, I'm just like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> because this doesn't describe me most of the time. That type of zeal, that type of indignation, that type of fear, that type of repentance, that type of longing to see God's worth be portrayed on the earth through my life. So I'm willing to turn from any and all tiny, small, big, little because of him. If that's the call, that's the call. And so what I want to do is I want to wrap up by giving you some practical handles. Because I, what do I do then? What does it look like? What are, the, what are the ingredients to repenting or to cultivating this godly grief? So I want to give you a list. Now, this list is not meant to overwhelm you, but rather you see that God has many means of grace to help us cultivate godly grief and to repent. Does that make sense? It is sort of like uh, if, you, if you built a house, you would have a reciprocating saw. What does it do? It reciprocates. It cuts wood, right? I didn't bring my table saw or my compound miter box. It was too big. I brought my coping saw. What does it do? Copes. Cuts wood. There's a theme developing here. I brought my skill saw. What does it do? 
It skills. <laughs> it cuts wood. Listen, I've got four or five more saws at home. What do they all do? They all do the same thing. They cut wood. But they all do it in a different way enough that I, needs, I need all of them to build a house. I'm going to give you a list of things that you need all of them to build your life. You need them to build your life, but I can't use them all at once, can I? So this is where you and God and your community group and your spouse and your parents get together and help you to work through, what do I need right now? And how do these work together in my life? So I'm going to give you nine. And it's not meant for you to go, oh, i got to go home and do nine things now. For those of you type A, put it down. But no, this is something, this is, like a, this is like, okay, I can take this, put it in my back pocket, take it with me, and go, okay, what is it that the Spirit wants me, how does he want me to, where does he want me to go with these nine in order to cultivate a godly grief that leads to repentance? How can this help me repent? So what are some ingredients, some things that help us repent? The first one is this, no duh, the word. So we know it says in John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So sanctification, which is what we're talking about, turning from sin to God, we need the word of God. And I'm not talking about just reading the word of God in general. I'm talking about going to God's word and saying, God, okay, there's this issue, this thing that I'm, I need to be doing that I'm not doing or that I am doing that I shouldn't be doing. So I want to know what God thinks about it, feels about it, and what he does about it so that I can see what, how he values that so then I can bring that into my life. Does that make sense? So it's not just memorizing a scripture like it's a magic bullet. It's going, okay, if I have trouble lying or, or I'm not thankful or I'm discontent, what does God think, feel, and do about that? How, how does he function? And then I want to line my life up with him because he's worthy of me doing that. God comes into the middle of the picture. I'm doing this because of God. I'm doing this for God. Number two, I think there's an important place for us to simply just sit and behold Jesus, which is what we've been talking about this morning. We memorize these verses before. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So we behold him, and then we are changed. We behold how much he is worth. We behold what he thinks and feels and does with certain things. And then we are transformed in the process of beholding him. Number three, there's a place woven into all of this for us to simply sit and say, Holy Spirit, sanctify me. <laughs> Holy Spirit, you got to change my heart. I've prayed this in the last couple of weeks. Met with our community group with the pastors and their wives, and they helped me with some things in my life. And I took a half step forward, and then I took four steps back, and now I'm trying to take steps forward again. But it really, it, it, it's, I know how desperately the Spirit has to change my heart. I cannot do that. So stop and ask the Spirit to change your heart. Number four, this is a huge one. Love this one. Such a long verse. You've got to have a handle on the gospel. So I'm going to read all this. It's a lot. Track with me. Help us. For this reason, this is, this is Peter writing, for this very reason, make every effort to. So this is repentance. Make every effort. Repentance takes effort and energy. So make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So all these things that God has called us to put on or to put off, both, all right, then he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They keep it from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For, you following me? I should have my laser pointer. For, whoever lacks these qualities, so whoever, whoever needs to repent because they're lacking these qualities, what is their problem? Peter tells us what their problem is. Is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You understand the, the train of thought there? Right, the verse, I can send, I'll send everybody my notes later today if you want to, and you can look at that. The point is this. Sometimes your lack of repentance and your lack of change is because you've forgotten you were cleansed from your former sins. And you simply need to sit there and think about all the sins you've been cleansed from. You think about all of them, and you go, I've been cleansed, 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 I've been forgiven and cleansed. And that is the fuel sometimes that we simply need in order to repent from our sin, and to cultivate godly grief. Number five, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You guys know this verse, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'll stop there. You resist him, and he flees. Listen, the devil is real. His, his, his demons are real. They lie to us, and they trap us, and they trick us, and they try to do stuff to us all the time. And just I don't know where you are theologically, but over the past however many years for me, 15 years, I've spent many, many hours with people casting out demons out of people, out of Christians. So if you feel like you're trapped and stuck and you're like, this voice won't leave me alone, come talk to me. We'll see if we can do some casting out because it's real. It's powerful. That's not necessarily what he's talking about there as far as resisting, but it's real. Okay? He's saying resist. In other words, do you know his trick? Someone once asked me, if the devil wanted to bring you down, what would he do, Matt? What would he do? You know what he would do. I know what he would do. Resist that. Resist that. And then that goes with the next one, which is God promises there's always a way of escape. This is one we don't talk about a ton, but he says, no temptation has taken you or overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there's a way of escape. This is like strategy, but there is a way. It may mean that you need to stop doing something or stop going somewhere or stop dreaming certain dreams or stop watching certain things or avoiding certain people. I don't know, but there's some kind of strategy here. God says, I've got ways of escape. So maybe you need to sit down with other people and go, help me to figure out the ways of escape. How can I escape this? Because I feel like I'm always trapped by it. And you need to have some kind of practical, how do I escape? Number seven, Train yourself for godliness. Training is the word I want you to focus on there. Just training, training, training. In other words, is there some area of your life that discipline, it's it's just a matter of discipline. Maybe you don't have self-control, and there needs to be some place or way that you deny yourself of something so that you're repenting and turning to him. Is there. And the last two go together, eight and nine, are both about confession confession. Number eight says this, therefore, it says in James, confess your sins to one another. So we're to confess our sins and get prayer. That should be a common practice in the Christian life, confessing our sins to others and getting prayer. And then in 1 John, it says this, this is the message that we have heard from you and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus covers our sins. So fellowship happens when we confess our sin with each other. 
That's what biblical fellowship is. It's, it's getting together with a brother or sister and confessing sin. That's how you have fellowship. When I was a kid growing up, we had a fellowship hall where everyone brought their potluck dinner. No one in there was confessing sin, therefore it's not a fellowship hall. It's a potluck dinner hall. <laughs> so make it, get, get in line in your head that fellowship means confession. It means walking in the light with other people, living in the light with others. And then you don't only confess your sins to another, but you confess your sin to God. And so he says, goes on in the same verse, and he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You guys know that verse, but it's a reminder, yes, we confess our sins to him. And we confess our sins, if you look at the verse, as a means of fellowship with him. I think we might need to tweak our thinking about this, because I think I've heard people say we confess our sin to restore our fellowship. Only Jesus can restore your fellowship through his blood. I think we confess our sins as a way of having fellowship. That's what this verse seems to be saying to me. So confession doesn't restore fellowship. Confession is fellowship. So you want a fellowship with God? Go confess sin as a means of fellowshipping with him. And then he will give you the grace to turn and repent. So they are fast. There's nine of them. I can shoot those to you if you want to. I'll give you my notes and you can look at them. That's a toolbox. That's something you take with you now. You put it in your car. You put it in your pocket. You take it with you, and you realize, okay, I, I, I want to be obsessed with repenting. I want to live for Jesus a thousand percent all the time. I want to turn from every and all sin. So what do I do? I don't know, God, but I know there's means to this, so let me figure out what they are. And here's some things that I think that can help each of us. Grab a hold of one of them. Grab a hold of two of them. Ask somebody to help you pick one and do that. Okay, I talk fast. <sighs> Overwhelmed. Little. Sorry, I know your brains, our brains are small. My brain is small. I would say your brains are small. I know your brains are so puny. God, I thank you that I am not like. I just pray these verses get some traction in our lives and in our church. And, and it's funny because it's, you don't think of repentance as a happy thing, but if I've been eating trash and I get to turn to the perfect God, is that not a happy thing? We just got to see it that way. And I know I don't. I don't see it that way. So I, I pray this message had a happy tone and that you can remember this as the happy message about repentance. So can I ask us to take a few minutes? You can talk to your neighbor or by yourself. You can just consider, is there one thing the Spirit has said to you this morning? One thing. And then what do you think you can do about it? I said a trillion things. I hope that wasn't making it impossible now for you to think about one thing. But I think it's good for us, before we even walk out the door this morning, just to say, is there one thing the Spirit is saying? Is there one thing that I'm like, okay, this is helpful, or I need to think about this more, or I need to turn from this, or if I could just do this one step, I think the Spirit wants me to, whatever that is, just take a minute and just think about it. Like I said, you can talk to each other. You can sit silent if you want to, but is there one takeaway? And then I'm going to come back and pray for us in three minutes. just want to give us three minutes of time to think and meditate.
Holy Spirit, I ask you to please pour out the gift of repentance on us. I pray that you would help us to think clearly about repentance, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the right heart and mind about repentance, and that you would give us the power to repent. Jesus, we thank you that you have conquered all of our sin. We thank you that you've not only broken the penalty of our sin, but you've broken the power of sin. And God, we acknowledge that we could do all nine of these things vehemently this week, and we're still going to fall miles short of your glory. And so we know we must have the blood of Christ even to cover our attempts to repent. And so we thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for being a great Savior. Thank you that you're not on the edge of your throne right now going, wow, I can't wait to see how good they're going to do this. (laughs) So thankful that's not the posture of your heart. Thank you that your desire is to simply see us live more free from our sin so that we can enjoy you in this life more, so that we can honor you more and please you more so that we can show the world accurately what you are like. I pray you'd help us to see how much you're worth and that we would want to turn from our sin, not even just to escape the consequences of it, but that we would turn from our sin because you're worth it, because you're wonderful and glorious, and that we get you when we turn from our sin, and you're worth it. So help us. Father, if there's any here this morning that just feels stuck, just really trapped and buried, maybe in a pattern of sin that they feel like they'll never get over, I ask, Lord Jesus, you would give them hope today, not in themselves, not even in their ability to turn, but that you're with them, that you dwell with them, that you dwell among them, that you're walking with them, that you're their father and that you call them your son or daughter. God, may that be the hope they cling to today. Not in what they need to go do, but in who you are and what you've already done. And so give hope where there's hopelessness. Give faith where it's it's lacking. And Lord, I, I do pray for us as a church body that we would be a people who know what it means to live a life that is marked with repentance. Help us to know what that means. Help us to learn how to do that as families and on our own and in our groups of three and in community group. Help us to learn what it means to live a life of repentance. And we pray all this because we love you, Jesus, and we want to see you more honored and glorified through our lives. So it's in your name we ask it. Amen.